Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup, we're going to be covering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. Before we get into those questions, I want to give a special shout out to those watching live here on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube on our SMIE social networks. Also want to say uh, though, to those listening on the audio-only podcast version of the Midweek Roundup, thank you for making us a part of your listening uh, habits this week and every week. We're fortunate we've now had over 3,200 downloads uh, for, the po- for the podcast version and including thousands and thousands of watches on our, on our live channels and on repeat. So thank you for making this roundup a part of your international edification each week. And as we say each week uh, with the Roundup, uh, we do uh, have these questions that we ask. Don't come out of thin air. Uh, They come from the news stories uh, that are happening in international education over the last few days. And those are captured in our newsletter that comes out on Mondays called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. In case you're wondering, SMIE stands for Social Media and International Education. That's the name of the consulting business. So we started that back in 2014, uh, the, the consulting business, to uh, help provide colleagues in the field uh, an opportunity to uh, digest uh, the news of the week uh, through the newsletter uh, and get our hot takes on the topics of the day that are uh, driving our profession forward. But also here on the Roundup, we go a little bit more in depth into three of those themes that we see developing uh, in the newsletters each week and cover those a little bit more in depth and give us uh, some uh, perspective on where all of these kind of pieces fit together in a larger strategic sense for international education in the United States. The newsletters can be subscribed to in a couple different ways, either on our website, smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. Scroll down a bit, hit the subscribe button, enter your details. You'll get the email version in your inbox every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. And then there's also uh, our LinkedIn version. And between the two, we now have over 1,700 subscribers uh, to the newsletter, all the SMIE news fit to share, that are folks in the profession that are getting it each week and digesting it in in a manageable fashion. That's about a five-minute read typically each week between 20 and 30 stories on social media topics that impact our field, webinars, AI, uh, different social platforms that are coming up. Uh, and then also the uh, how stories in the United States, potential solutions, as well as a global roundup of how uh, different countries are grappling with international education-related news. So all that's in the newsletter, so please do subscribe if you're not already. Uh, the links to both of those will be in the chat uh, below. So let's get right into the questions of the week. And today we start with a question that uh, is on campus, frankly, one of the stickier uh, wickets that you have to navigate uh, through uh, your conversations with senior leadership, certainly, and that's your budget, your international budget. And the question is really, how do you prioritize your international budget? And our friends at Inted, who have been doing incredible work in the marketing and consulting business for international education space for a number of years now, their team has been growing substantially over the last few years. They put out regular weekly blogs on different topics related to international ed. So uh, there's a most recent one from last week that covers uh, budgeting frameworks, uh, budgeting framework for student enrollment projects. And uh, they, they highlight in particular this, this way, this go round, uh, what uh, specifically on budget and how you allocate funds in whatever budget you do have. Uh, and the, the guiding light for this, uh, for this article is a refl- uh, the statement that your budget 
is an expression of your values. And I think there's a lot of truth in that because uh, where you spend your money uh, uh, is where you, uh, where you prioritize uh, your efforts, right? In terms of what you, as a, a senior international leader or an international missions person that has control over budget, that's where you spend your resources on that which you think is most important. And like the Bible says, uh, where your treasure, treasures are, that is where your heart is. Uh, and that's in terms of where your priorities are. And that the, but your budget is an expression of that uh, in terms of where you put your money as a reflection of what you think is most important. And this, uh, this framework that we're talking about today uh, as it relates to uh, prioritizing uh, how you spend your resources, uh, it's captured in uh, the, the values piece uh, is uh, where, where I think we really need to focus our time because we can get really caught up when it, with a shiny new toy or a new service provider that comes on uh, the landscape that starts offering uh, and making unrealistic promises for what they can deliver in terms of yield or in terms of students or in terms of value for money, ROI, all of that. Uh, that's what they have to do to get business, right? I've uh, been on that side of the fence before, uh, working for service providers, and uh, that's uh, the, uh, the over-promise, under-deliver, uh, unfortunately, is kind of the nature of the beast in our industry. Uh, that's uh, how a lot of intel international ed tech firms uh, kind of rise and fall very quickly because they they uh, set the stall out very uh, boldly in terms of what they think they can deliver on. Uh, they do that for their investors because, frankly, that's how they uh, get the funding to do what they want to do. But uh, more often than not, they fall fall short and end up having to contract or uh, eliminate staff positions that they have uh, filled in. But for institutions, we can often get distracted from the longer the longer term goals, the bigger picture, the strategic vision our uh, either our institution has or your international unit has for where. Uh, where, what, what, what is really uh, the driving force of what you do in terms of uh, international uh, enrollment, international education, and international admissions, whatever it might be. So uh, the focus in terms of this uh, the, uh, is not on, when it comes to budget with this article, is focusing less on tactics and more on the strategic vision and how uh, you allocate resources in that respect. Uh, they do spend uh, a, a big uh, piece of this article talking about um, Jill Blondin, uh, who, a good friend who's at uh, Virginia Commonwealth. She's the SIO there, uh, IIE Senior International Officer of the Year, as she just received that award at uh, the AIEA conference uh, last week. And uh, she is, um, has, has uh, a thriving team uh, at VCU and a really robust uh, campus buy-in for what they're doing with international education. And she has uh, gained a reputation recently uh, through uh, strategic budget workshops that she does for international educators and senior leaders, uh, along with her colleague, uh, Paulo Zagalamilo from uh, Western Michigan University uh, and Annette Cummings at, uh, also at Western Michigan. So uh, they are doing a 2.0 budget workshop uh, in, in later this year. Uh, they've got a, a white paper that's out, we'll feature in next week's newsletter. And the driving, uh, theme for their uh, content related to international budgeting is align your budget with your strategy, not the other way around, a strategy with whatever budget you have. So uh, what Jill boils it down to is 
how the international office can't be the be-all and end-all of uh, dollars that are spent on things related to international on campus because uh, it's just there never is enough uh, in an in a inter international office budget to do to do all the things you need to do. Uh, it's also uh, a piece that speaks to what are the priorities at the institution? And this is something I can relate to very well as we're dealing with this right now at uh, UNLV. We started an internationalization project in the summer of 2021 uh, when a, a new president had started during the pandemic. He had come from, uh, from, uh, from Wayne State in, uh, in Michigan, uh, where it had a very good SIO there. Um, and now Ahmad Ezzedine, uh, previous SIO of the year last year for from IIE, and uh, he wanted to replicate a lot of the success that he had internationally. He went on a lot of trips and all of that fun stuff. But uh, when he came to UNLV, he made the decision that we, we need to internationalize because we hadn't done anything as an institution to support and generate uh, a strategy that supported our students from the initial prospect stage through to successful becoming successful alumni. We didn't have a robust study abroad uh, initiatives in terms of encouraging more of our first-gen students. Uh, our, um, we're significantly uh, a minority-serving campus, HSI, AAPIISI, uh, and all of these things that have real weight uh, to who we are as an institution, supporting them as uh, the diversity of our students, and but also internationalizing our campus, encouraging more students to go abroad, and building more research uh, partnerships with institutions abroad and other uh, other related projects on that front. So this is what uh, that the, what it boils down to is, as Jill makes out uh, in her in 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 her. Um, uh, way she way she talks about this is that uh, aligning budget with your strategy uh, is what it really needs to be, and what it boils down to is should boil down to is that you are trying to create institutionally a student first experience, right? Where everything an institution does, not just the international office, but everything the institution does, supports the student success model. Where it's not just about getting them in the front door, making sure they get their classes and get, get where they need to be, find out where everything is and get uh, maybe retained for the second semester. It's a full life cycle experience, right? That you're trying to build. And that's what's a truly uh, strategic approaches to international enrollment especially have a lot to do with a student first experience where it, it's not just the international office that has that responsibility it's every office on campus because yes every off, every campus has uh, a multicultural center or a dei office now or a veterans office or if, um, advising for um, for uh, first gen students or uh, pre-med students, everybody has slightly different needs and international students are certainly no exception to that. And that every office that they interact with throughout their time on campus uh, has to be aware of what those needs are and that what restrictions they might have legally in terms of what they can and can't do in terms of employment in, uh, during their stay, in terms of what they can do at the end of their, uh, end of their time as, an, as a student before they graduate, uh, all the OPT op implications and STEM and all of these other things, there are restrictions on what they can and can't do. And that's something that campus-wide needs to be prioritized to be truly student-centered or student-first experiences. And budget speaks a lot to uh, how you are spending your money uh, doing that. Uh, on the enrollment side, it's, uh, okay, 
don't just buy all the new toys because they think uh, that that's going to solve your problems in terms of enrollment. If it's a conversion issue, maybe it re requires you to have more of your current students being engaged with your future students throughout their uh, prospective student stage before they arrive on campus. Uh, it's uh, spending the money on the services you need on the, on the back end for once they get to campus. That really says a lot about where you are prioritizing uh, the services you do provide in terms of orientation. Are you doing airport pickups? Are you uh, making sure you have temporary housing for them? What are you doing about food before the university uh, residence hall food cafeterias pick in, kick in for that? All of these things are, are where, where you're spending your money shows you where your priorities are. So great article from uh, Inted that kind of covers that and they, uh, they have uh, an uh, downloadable uh, three essential budget questions, a framework for planning that you can download, and I'll drop that link to the article in the uh, chat as well. So that's the first question of the day. Now the second is uh, kind of a summary of what's happening with uh, migration strategies and changes to government policies in three key markets, primarily Canada, Australia, and the UK. All three of them have had very significant uh, changes to government policy as it affects new students coming into the country. Uh, you've seen in the UK with their dependent study, student study ban, uh, where previously dependents of students in master's degree programs or even undergraduate programs could bring their family members with them if they had the proof that they had the funding for them. Uh, that has gone away uh, as of uh, the end of December. So now uh, only uh, PhD students, uh, doctoral students that are coming in can bring dependents with. So that has cut out um, in uh, to the two to the two of the UK's primary markets, India and Nigeria, where the majority of uh, dependents that have been coming previously are now no longer able to. You're already starting to see a, a drop off in numbers coming from those two countries for master's level study. So this is something that is, is quite significant and will have uh, a long term implication in terms of numbers coming to the UK, the damage done to the reputation of uh, the UK as a destination. You still have significant housing issues uh, in the UK as well in terms of universities we talked about last week that were telling students if you don't have ho uh, housing prearranged before you arrive, don't come, and even if you have your visa. So really challenging uh, difficulties for students to, to overcome, to tr even want to go to the, uh, end up going to the UK. Uh, you have in Australia, you've seen uh, issues now with the changes to the mig uh, migration policies in terms of who the vetting process for visas and who qualifies as a genuine student. That's a new thing that uh, the Australian government has introduced, a genuine student test uh, to, tr to weed out a lot of the what they call two-step migrants that come for uh, either one of two ways, either come for university courses and uh, within a semester they decide, no, I'm going, even though I was admitted for a doctoral program, I want to come and do a vocational program that's shorter, uh, much less expensive, and I'll be done in a, a year and a half, two years max, and be able to work right away. Uh, that's kind of that first step, and then the next step they're already, already uh, trying to trying to take advantage of is uh, is to is a two-step process to that they can become uh, become. Um, they can become residents in Australia. Uh, we've seen, as a result, uh, the much stricter uh, vetting on the visa side. We've seen uh, in Rome, uh, visa approval rates drop uh, dramatically from uh, what used to be 
I think uh, used to be 90% or higher, down to 80% or lower, and that nets out to about, about 90,000 fewer international students that are expecting this year as a result. In some sectors, particularly in the vocational education secretary section uh, for vocational colleges uh, and also English language programs, are taking huge hits. Uh, the vocational education sector had recorded a 0.0 approval rate in December for new student uh, visas. So uh, the vetting of uh, who's getting approved, particularly from South Asia has been dropping significantly uh, in terms of the numbers that are going to are, have been coming through. And India had become, the, uh, like China before, the largest market in Australia post-pandemic, and now those numbers are going to probably start to drop as well. So that's going on in Australia. In Canada, you have the new uh, trusted institutional framework or designated institutional framework that has been implemented. You have the ban on new uh, public-private partnerships uh, for students that start after the end of August uh, will not have access to, to uh, post-study work, the postgraduate work permit in Canada. Uh, those that come in before are still going to have that, but th that's a looming uh, crash for that public-private partnership model in Canada. I'm uh, looking forward to chatting about those topics with some Canadian colleagues when I uh, head out to API next week. Uh, there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of my colleagues there north of the border that will be sharing, uh, I'm sure, some of their adaptation strategies to these new policies that the Canadian government has implemented. And what's driving uh, issues there, as in Australia, as in the UK, is overcrowding at a lot of these institutions. Uh, the poster child for that has been Cape Breton University in Canada that had tripled their international enrollment and they were up to 9,000 total students. 70% of them were international, but they don't have housing. They literally do not have anywhere to put all these people. They're living five, six, seven, eight, nine, to, to a th two or three bedroom apartment. Uh, those numbers are just not sustainable. So there, Cape Breton has made the decision to contract their enrollment overall. And that means fewer international dollars, fewer dollars to the institution, and uh, to ease off, ease up on the, on the housing crunch there. Uh, but also in other places in, in, in Canada, that's happening too. Uh, but you see some significant challenges with all of this, uh, with housing, with migration policies, with government inter involvement in uh, not micromanaging, but certainly getting much more engaged in who's coming in and who's, 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 and, uh, who's not getting in, the policies that are impacting the kinds of institutions that we want to really be bringing students in for. Uh, there's some positive sites, uh, turns in Canada where they're really shifting focus to uh, master's degree candidates now, and that may open up some other opportunities that they're not pre presently leveraging. But these migration strategies, uh, in terms of impact on the international education uh, offices and departments on campus, are, are certainly significant. And in planning budget-wise for them, uh, we talked about budget in the previous uh, previous uh, in, uh, topic or question, that's going to be even more significant for these um, Canadian institutions that have become over-dependent, and UK and Australian institutions that have become over-dependent on the international dollars. Uh, as I've talked about before, in the U.S., we, we have a couple of competitive advantages. We have more capacity to enroll international students on our campuses. We're only at 5% international in the United States, whereas Canada, U.K., uh, Australia are 25% or higher, up to 30, 35%, uh, 50% in some institutions uh, because there just aren't as many institutions in those countries, so they can't spread them around as much. So there's some real significant bandwidth challenges in terms of capacity for these other countries in terms of their institutions, in terms of their housing, uh, for 
enrolling many more international students. And you're going to see in all three of those countries, I think, over the next year or so, the numbers uh, start to decline. We already know that there's an imposed cap for the next two years in Canada on new international student study permits that will be issued. So that's already a, going to be a negative for that country. UK, because of their dependent study ban and some of the other uh, restrictions that they have, they're going to see a drop. Australia is going to see a drop. So the U.S. is sitting pretty right now, and uh, knock on wood that things go well with the election uh, in terms of the next president's or continued president and policies that will not negatively impact the international ed profession uh, in the United States. But we'll see. Nothing's for certain in this business, for sure, and can change at a, uh, with, a, with the start of a war, a turn of an election, economic crisis. All of these things impact what we do in international ed. But these migration strategies and the approaches Canada, UK, and Australia have taken are certainly going to be backfiring, uh, may, may present uh, or preserve some short-term uh, political benefits in terms of we can show the public that our numbers are coming down, that we're, there's less housing crimes, there's less strain on, on uh, national health services and all of these other things. But uh, in the long run, for international educators in those countries, there's some really tough times ahead. So my heart, heart goes out to all of you who are, are going to be struggling with those issues. Now let's shift gears and talk about our last question of the day. A little bit of a depressing one, uh, and it's one that is not a new question. Uh, it's been asked a lot, but it's, it's certainly getting uh, more attention in the, the uh, media lately. And uh, certainly in Africa it is. And uh, certainly Western, public, Western uh, outlets are starting to pick up on it. Uh, and the question is, are African students being cast aside by Western nations? And I don't think... Um, at, certainly on the international education level, we're not certainly casting them aside because we see them as huge potential resources uh, and benefits for our campus by bringing in students from Africa that have a very different perspective that helps educate our domestic students in new and unique ways that they might not be, uh, be currently exposed to. Uh, that their stories are as valuable, if not more so, in terms of how they, are, um, how, how they have been able to even get to the point where they can consider coming to the United States uh, with, the, with the, the, the economic consequences in their, uh, and, and uh, damage done through currency crisis and wars and uh, famines and disease and all of these things that impact them, perhaps more so than other countries in the world. So um, when we talk about African students being cast aside, a lot of the evidence for that comes through, uh, the, frankly, the numbers that we see uh, for visa denial rates that are, uh, in many cases, 50% or less visa approvals uh, for students coming from African nations to the United States, to Canada, to the UK, Australia, probably to the UK a little bit less because Nigeria has been such a significant one, probably their third or fourth largest uh, source market for students, uh, but that, those numbers are going to be dropping. Uh, we've seen uh, currency devaluations, particularly in Nigeria, uh, taking a significant toll recently. But visas always seem to be the real crux of the problem uh, for um, African students who are looking to study in the West. And because of issues in the past of uh, fraudulent documents, of visa overstays, of students who come and disappear, who come and plead poverty uh, after showing that they had $50,000 a year to spend uh, from their, for the, on their education, all of those things are not unusual stories that we hear on campus. 
I worked at an institution, my first institution, that uh, we required from certain West African nations, we required a full semester's tuition deposit before we would issue an I-20. Uh, I don't know if they still do that, but that, those are the kinds of restrictions. And that was done because we'd had so many students who'd come previously who uh, w came without money and uh, then were those... Uh, kind of poverty cases that we had to step in and support until they could either find funding through an assistantship as a graduate level or get a scholarship to help uh, cover their costs or uh, someone in the community that could house them, all these things that have that happened, not just for African students, but others as well, but seem to be fairly unique to that population. Uh, but the challenge we face uh, in international ed uh, as part of our uh, the Global South to Global North uh, challenge that we face uh, is uh, the, uh, the brain drain that we've been accused of, uh, taking the best and brightest from Africa and then coming to the U.S. And, or other countries and not leaving, uh, talking about uh, just the uh, one-way traffic, really, in terms of relationships between institutions and how those need to be looked at. That's certainly something on my agenda for the next three or four years is how do we develop truly reciprocal partnerships uh, that go have a two-way flow. So it's not just them coming to us. Uh, we need to be investing in them as well uh, and see that as a priority institutionally. But, and one of the reasons for that is the uh, enrollment rates of African students globally are expected to hit the fastest, are to be the fastest in the next 10 years. Uh, that by 2050, one in eight international students will be African. And the, but the challenge is now, those visa issues today are preventing those numbers from really becoming realities in terms of huge numbers uh, of African students getting the opportunity to study abroad. So uh, even though they might, they may have the money <laughs> and those that do are, get, are getting denied on in larger numbers. So all of these things are real challenges that as institutions we need to really take a look at and work with our governments to try and figure out what uh, that looks like. Uh, how do we support these students that want to come to the United States? Uh, I've worked at institutions and I've seen others do it as well that are, will not uh, accept applications from uh, African applicants in, in Nigeria, Ghana, other West African nations, unless they've gone through Education USA, because they know that if they see an application coming from Education USA with a recommendation letter from the advisor there, that they are getting the, as as good an, uh, an advising experience and preparation for eventual visa success than uh, the typical uh, student that might be working through dodgy agents in that country. Uh, so uh, that there, there are things that we can be doing as institutions to really uh, work within in, the, in our system with partners in country that makes sense and that are above board and are, can be trusted and have track records of success. And that's really what you need to have. And you can't do that on, on an island. You can't just say, well, I'm, I'm not going to work with students from Africa or from these particular countries because they never pay their bills and they become indigent and then they have to leave. Uh, they basically become failed students because they didn't have the support. Well, look at what the front end of that process looked like. How did you vet them properly? Uh, or did you prevent them properly? Did you rely on any in-country support to really give you a, a, a true sense of whether they are legitimate students and have even a chance of getting a visa. So th these are the things that we can be doing, but it, it's more than just us as in individual institutions working with in-country representatives. We need to be advocating for, uh, an, as they have done in Canada, to have a review of their study permit issuance process for African students, that that's underway to see if there are uh, racist uh, 
elements in terms of decisions that are made for African students' visas uh, as opposed to the rest. So these are things that we have to be advocates for our future students. And if we're not, uh, we're, we're doing them a disservice and we're not preparing a path that's a clear one for them to be able to enroll. So these are the kind of challenges we're dealing with uh, when we're talking about African students, but it's, uh, it's not something we can just put up our hands and say, no, can't, not for me, I can't do it, it's too much work. Uh, if we're truly uh, prioritizing uh, diversification in our um, international student enrollments, uh, Africa needs to be on the, on the menu uh, and needs to be a priority in terms of uh, seeing the, the challenges in that market. It doesn't mean giving up, it just means you have to work a little bit differently than you do in India or in China or in Latin America or in Europe or the Middle East. You have to have um, strategies in place to adjust to the conditions on the ground in each country. That's the perspective you need to have going in to your recruitment uh, approach that is not one size fits all. Uh, you see what's happened in the UK, and I'll finish with this. Uh, there's, uh, we, I mentioned earlier that the dependent study ban uh, has had a significant impact on master's degree and uh, lower students that are coming to the UK because they can't bring family with anymore. Uh, that Nigerian students were like a number two uh, source market for students coming uh, as with dependents previously. That you now have data that's showing that Nigerian students are no longer interested in the numbers that they were studying in the United Atlantic Kingdom. That applications, particularly for undergraduate studies from Nigeria, have dropped 46 percent. And that's more than any other country in that period in the previous year. So uh, what uh, the UK is dealing with is the fallout from uh, where, where those, uh, how do we get that market back? And the government really needs to step up and, and do something or, and or universities need to be better advocates for their students and, and to change policy uh, so that uh, more uh, students can be accommodated. So these are the challenges we're dealing with uh, this week with and the questions we're asking about uh, in international education. So we hope you found some nuggets in here that'll be useful for you as you take back to your institution. But we wish you the very best. And uh, next week, just a quick heads up, we'll be live from the API uh, exhibit hall uh, where we'll be meeting uh, uh, as in my role at UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, uh, we'll be um, meeting with uh, prospective university partners uh, in the region uh, to in the Asia Pacific region for uh, partnerships with our institution. I'll be one of two U.S. colleges at the Education USA Pavilion. Uh, looking forward to connecting with uh, future uh, partners at that program. So uh, looking forward to uh, getting connecting with you next week uh, live from the exhibit hall in Perth, Australia. So until then, have a great day and we'll chat with you next week. Cheers.